0: Here it is, folks. Finally made it to the home stretch. Today we start *The Master and Margarita* by Mikhail Bulgakov. And yep, this is another one of my favorites, not gonna deny it, like, I love this book deeply, I know a lot of people love this book deeply, like, if you poke around in our particular copy by P. and Volokhonsky, you can see that there are numerous little blurbs in there, including one from Daniel Radcliffe, of all people, um, saying that it is their favorite novel, and it is just wonderful, like, it is gorgeous, it is crazy, it is lively, it is fun, it is weird, like, it's truly a wonderful little novel, um, and probably a lot more lighthearted than a lot of the stuff that we've been reading in class thus far. Um, but the bad news is we really don't have time to cover the whole thing, unfortunately. Um, so for this class, my prescription is going to be to get as far as you can. Like, I will keep issuing quizzes as long as I think you really need to read it in order to you know know it for assignments in the class and stuff. Uh, But generally speaking, we're going to kind of trail off on this one. You are welcome to keep reading at your discretion, it is my hope that I'll be able to record lectures for the entire novel, um, so anyone who is reading along in internet land is more than welcome to just finish it with me. Um, But if you can't handle it because the semester is getting nuts, that's okay, no big deal, just follow along as long as you can. mostly, like, read as much as you want, I suppose, is what it comes down to. Because it is a lot of fun, and it's worth getting to the end. There's a lot of good stuff to talk about. Um, But the key that I definitely want to talk about for this book is the beginning, say, 150 pages or so. um, As we start to see the way that this novel is progressing. Um... And it is strangely structured, but I think you'll start to get the hang of it as we go along. Um, So without any further ado, let's just jump right in. And much like we did with many of our Faust stories, um, I want to start at the very beginning. But in this case, even before the beginning, I want to start with our little epigraph here at the beginning Um, Because Bulgakov specifically starts this novel out with a quote that we should all recognize at this point. Namely, I am part of that power which eternally wills evil and eternally works good. Now, we should know this line directly from Goethe's Faust. This is when Mephistopheles is sort of declaring who he is. Like, Faust specifically asks him, you know, who are you? What kind of spirit are you? And this is the answer that Mephistopheles gives him just before we are told that he is also the spirit of perpetual negation. Um, But this is the more powerful of the two descriptions, I think. This is the one with the longer history you'll remember. Like, we talked way back in Milton about how the devil was you know, sort of challenged by Beelzebub, um, that while Satan was saying, I will always turn my efforts to evil, Beelzebub was saying, well, what if that's God's whole plan? What if all of your evil deeds are ultimately going to be turned to God's good purposes? And here we have Bulgakov leading with this idea. Um, This entire novel is framed under this concept that the devil is willing evil and working good doing good despite himself. that He is ultimately a force for God's designs. Um, Now, we should be cautious about interpreting this directly because, again, there's a lot of interesting sort of conversation in this book about whether or not God exists, whether or not the devil exists, how exactly that fits into the whole you know, culture at the time. Like, there's a lot of questions about religion flying around the periphery of this book, even from the first chapter. Like, if you just open up this first chapter, we see this conversation. Like, the first interaction we have with our characters is between Mikhail Alexandrovich Berlioz and Ivan Nikolaevich Ponyarev, who we will know as homeless um, in this novel. And the two of them are talking specifically about religion. Um, Namely, Berlioz is the editor of some fancy periodical, some big deal magazine, and Homeless, our poet, just wrote this poem about Jesus. Um, Berlioz contracted him to write a poem about Jesus, but Berlioz is upset with the poem that uh, Homeless has delivered. Um, So if you look at page 5, we get this description of their conversation. This conversation, as was learned afterwards, was about Jesus Christ. The thing was that the editor had commissioned from the poet a long, anti-religious poem for the next issue of his journal. Ivan Nikolaevich had written this poem, and in a very short time, but unfortunately the editor was not at all satisfied with it. Homeless had portrayed the main character of his poem, that is, Jesus, in very dark colors. But nevertheless, the whole poem, in the editor's opinion, had to be written over again, and so the editor was now giving the poet something of a lecture on Jesus, with the aim of underscoring the poet's essential error. So again, Berlioz is the editor, Homeless is his poet, Homeless has submitted this poem that was designed to be anti-religious, like the Berlioz specifically wanted a poem that, like, confronted and rejected religion, and instead Homeless has delivered something slightly out of what Berlioz wanted. It is hard to say what precisely had let Ivan Nikolaevich down, the descriptive powers of his talent or of total unfamiliarity with the question he was writing about, but his Jesus came out, well, completely alive. The once existing Jesus, though true, a Jesus furnished with all negative features. Now, Berlioz wanted to prove to the poet that the main thing was not how Jesus was, good or bad, but that the same Jesus, as a person, simply never existed in the world, and all the stories about him were mere fiction the most ordinary mythology. And we proceed to have Berlioz go in great detail about how Jesus is purely a mythological figure, how he never existed, how, you know, there are all these stories about sons of God and all of these ancient cultures and mythologies that Jesus is, in short, not good, not bad, but just hokum, um, nonsense, just a myth. Homeless wrote a poem about Jesus as a terrible person. Berlioz wants a poem about Jesus as not a person at all. And at this point, even this far in the book, it's time for us to, like, take five steps back and do a good bit of sort of contextualization here. Um, First off, as we ran into with Dostoevsky, we've got a bunch of Russian names floating around in this particular novel. And I imagine it's fairly overwhelming, even if we have only run into, like, four characters at this point outside of the pilot story which we'll come back to um we ran into this in Dostoevsky a little bit like we have Ivan Karamazov and Alyosha Karamazov but since those were really the only two characters we're run- we were running into besides like Smerdyakov and Dmitry you know it-, it wasn't that bad but one of the things that you will notice about any Russian novel you read is that it is littered with characters who all have three names and it's all like super confusing um the three names that we see here, it, it's worth noting that, like, the middle name especially is just a patronymic. It is the father's name. Like, it, it's basically equivalent to, like, old ways of speaking where you would be like, oh, it is, you know, Bob, son of Jeff. Like, this is effectively what the, what the patronymic functions as. So Ivan Nikolaevich is actually, you know, Ivan, the son of Nicholas. Um, Mikhail Alexandrovich is Mikhail, son of Alexander. For our purposes, though, you don't need to get all too caught up in the the first name and the patronymic. Um, Your average Russian novel is going to refer to the characters familiarly by their first name and patronymic, but will frequently refer to the characters more formally by their last name. And as a consequence, as long as you've got a decent idea of the last name of the characters, you'll probably be in good shape. And conveniently, for our sake, the last names tend to be more memorable with Bulgakov. Um, Berlioz especially is named after the composer Berlioz, who, if you remember, we talked about a little bit when we were talking about Faust. Um, He's the guy who wrote The Night of the Witch's Sabbath, the sort of like jumpy little musical number that celebrated, you know, the occult. Um, Berlioz also did a poem on Faust, which is or like an a opera on Faust, um, which is worth considering under the circumstances now that we've got the devil floating around in in Soviet Russia. It's mild spoiler alert. Hopefully we figure that out at this point. Um, so at this point, we've got two characters. We've got Berlioz, the editor, and we've got Homeless, the poet. But that's not the only caveat we need to make here. The other thing we need to emphasize is that this is, in fact, a novel of Soviet Russia. Um, this, is, this is a novel written under the Stalinist regime. Bulgakov is himself a poet in a like society of writers, a poet and playwright, um, who is trying to compose works under Stalinism. And this is a tricky business, um, and we'll see more of the sort of, like, political difficulties involved later as we sort of investigate more deeply the, the community of writers in, in Moscow at this point in time. Um, but keep in mind, first off, that uh, Bulgakov is writing from experience here. Like, he is not writing about Soviet Russia, like, 50 years after the fact. Like, he's in the thick of it right now. But also, we should keep in mind that there's a certain amount of danger to this, um, Bulgakov is kind of constantly keep like trying to protect himself because if he writes something that is especially offensive to the censors or to the, the Soviet Party he could very well disappear into a secret prison and never be seen again, which is, again, something that we will definitely come back to. We did not talk too much about the transition of the Russians in the 20th century. We, you know, had enough to talk about as far as the 20th century is concerned. Um, shortly after World War One, the Russian Revolution took place, and the old system of the Tsars was basically destroyed overnight. Um, A lot of that has to do with, you know, Bolsheviks being angry with the situation and this crazy monk guy, Rasputin, who was apparently controlling the throne by, you know, being able to perform some quasi-supernatural healing on the the young uh, Tsar's son. Like, it's a giant mass and quite a good story at the end of the day. Unfortunately, not something we really had time to get into. Um, Ultimately, the communists, the Bolsheviks, won the day. Um, and there was several different successions of power. Trotsky was defeated by Lenin, Stalin overthrew Trot- er, through the Leninist regime, and now we've got Stalin, who is no question a tyrant in his own right. Um, as much as he claims to be a communist, as much as he is sort of preaching communism and using communist language and is setting up a system that looks, if you squint, like communism- as much as this is all supposedly in the name of the workers, this is not the workers gaining power. Stalin is absolute power here. This is a totalitarian government structure. Um, And as much as, you know, you will see a lot of sort of elements of communism in what Bulgakov describes over the course of this novel, it is really only skin deep. Um, And it's making a mess. Like, that's one of the things that Bulgakov is going to be emphasizing here. Um, but because this is ostensibly communism, Marxist thinking is very much pervading the culture that Bulgakov is describing here. So you'll notice, like Ivan Homeless and Berlioz are talking about Jesus in this way that indicates that you know the the mistake that Homeless made in writing a Jesus who was evil was in assuming that Jesus exists at all. Communism is fundamentally atheist. Like, just about all Marxists um, acknowledge only materialism as power. There are no supernatural figures. There is no religion. All of religious truths are just, you know, an opiate for the masses, Marx once described. Um, Religion is nonsense. It's bunkum. It's just you know a distraction to keep workers in line the first thing that good communists have to do is get rid of religion in order to inspire the workers to overthrow their oppressive capitalist masters um, so as a consequence it is in the government's best interests for all of these publications like Berlioz's periodical to reject the existence and the authority of religion any way that they can. And notice that both of these writers are doing this. Homeless, on the one hand, is trying to undermine religion by writing Jesus as a bad person, but in the process, he accidentally makes Jesus out to be believable, realistic. Um, and therefore, that's why Berlioz is getting on his case. The agenda that he wants to push is that Jesus didn't exist at all. He's just a myth. Both of these are friendly to the communist power structure, to the you know communist agenda, um, but they're, they're friendly in different ways, and homeless might be treading a little bit too close to stepping on the toes of, of good communists in this Soviet regime. Um, but notice, too, the assumptions that are implicit here. Notice that Berlioz is commissioning a poem and criticizing a poem not because it's good or bad, but because it doesn't fit the political agenda of the regime that they are trying to support, that they live under. The fact of the matter is, Berlioz doesn't really care all that much about whether or not Jesus lived or not, about whether or not the Gospels are true or not. Like as much as he delivers this very long diatribe about you know Josephus and Tacitus and all of the historical evidences that Jesus did not exist, or all of the like fabricated evidence evidences that he did, he doesn't really seem to be that motivated. It's just something to talk about. Like, we'll even see a little bit later that Berlioz may have ulterior motivations altogether. The fact of the matter is he's holding the line here. He's doing what the government expects him to do. He is basically covering his ass, um, which becomes more clear as the story goes on. So here we are in communist Russia, here we are with Stalin breathing down everybody's necks, and Ivan Homeless and Berlioz are having this conversation about this poem that may or may not get them in trouble, which is why Berlioz is trying to, like, make sure that it doesn't get them in trouble, and then all of a sudden, things start getting weird, we are introduced to our third major character. Technically there is like one sighting of a different character at one point, but that's, we'll ignore that for now. Um, the character that we finally meet, who actually does in fact show up, we get a shockingly Tom Walker-ish ambivalent description like different people are giving different reports of what this person looks like Um, so on page six it says afterwards when frankly speaking it was already too late various institutions presented reports describing this man a comparison of them cannot but cause amazement thus the first of them said that the man was short had gold teeth and limped on his right leg the second that the man was enormously tall had platinum crowns and limped on his left leg the third laconically averred that the man had no distinguishing marks It must be acknowledged that none of these reports is of any value. First of all, the man described did not limp on any leg and was neither short nor enormous, but simply tall. As for his teeth, he had platinum crowns on the left side and gold on the right. He was wearing an expensive gray suit and imported shoes of a matching color. His gray beret was cocked rakishly over one ear. Under his arm, he carried a stick with a black knob shaped like a poodle's head. He looked to be a little over 40, mouth somehow twisted, clean-shaven, dark-haired, right eye black, left, for some reason, green. Dark eyebrows, but one higher than the other. In short, a foreigner. Now notice the first paragraph there of, like, the descriptions that are false, you know, that he limps on one leg, that he's short or rather enormous, or that he's got, like, all these gold crowns on one side or platinum on the other, like... All of these reports should remind us of, like, the the kind of storytelling quality that we see from Tom Walker or a lot of the other sort of, like, fables that we've run into, like Daniel Webster. Um, It's clear that Bulgakov is sort of distinguishing between, on the one hand, what is the truth and what is reported. Like, there's... this guy is apparently the subject of some speculation, in, in Moscow at this point. And some of the eyewitnesses who claim that they saw this person are very unreliable. But notice too that Bulgakov, unlike Irving, is willing to be completely authoritative at the end of the day. Um, he gives us the second paragraph to correct the bad eyewitness accounts. Um, our narrator here is, at the end of the day, omniscient. It, he is trustworthy. He can give us information that otherwise we shouldn't be able to have. So despite the fact that, you know there are eyewitnesses accounts and those eyewitnesses are false, we do have a consistent, like solid, reliable account from the narrator itself, which is important in this case means that as much as this story is going to be grounded in, like, storytelling conventions, as much as it is one part fable, one part romance, another part of it is sober-mindedly true. And in fact, Bulgakov is kind of playful in the way that he's going to talk about this. Um, Frequently, when he does make these sorts of corrections, when he does speak as an authority, he's also going to, like, poke fun at the people who aren't actually telling the whole truth either because they are mistaken or because of other reasons. Bulgakov has a certain joy in the irony here. Um he's willing to have fun with the story that he's telling which we should also enjoy. Like he's willing to pepper the the description with little jokes about the characters like this business of the third laconically averring that the man had no distinguishing marks. Like we have one um we have one eyewitness who says one thing, a second eyewitness who says exactly the opposite, and then a third who says that they're both wrong and no, no one of them can agree with the others. Like, it's just absurd, and it's meant to be absurd. It's silly. Um, but notice, too, that in our actual description of the devil, we get a couple of details that tip us off to the fact that this is, in fact, the devil. Um, especially the stick that he carries, which has the black knob shaped like a poodle's head. You'll remember, back in Goethe's Faust, when Mephistopheles first appears to Faust, he appears in the shape of a poodle. Um, So here is another dead giveaway that what we're dealing with is something powerful and terrifying. Um, And he has, or Bulgakov gives us a number of details over the course of this first chapter that sort of tip us off to the fact that the devil is, in fact, the devil. Um, That this foreign professor is in fact more than he seems um so for example he's got the the cigarette case um he's like at one point he offers Ivan Homeless a cigarette and Homeless says that he wants our brand um one of the things that is sort of typical of communist culture is that like you as a good communist citizen do not want to be seen or like identified using foreign brands like you shouldn't uh, smoke English cigarettes if you are a com- a good party communist. Um, you should smoke the local, like, communist Russian-made cigarettes, even if they're freaking terrible, and they often are. Um, so notice that Homeless, you know, guards himself. Uh, here is this foreigner, he probably has access to better smokes, and yet Ivan Homeless knows that he is responsible to his party, so he demands our brand. And surprisingly... The you know, the devil has them. And what's even more shocking than the fact that he has the locally made, specifically citizen cigarettes is the fact that he has them in this gorgeous case. Um, the description on page eleven, it says editor and poet were both struck not so much by our brand precisely turning up in the cigarette case as by the cigarette case itself. It was of huge size, made of pure gold, and as it was opened, a diamond triangle flashed white and blue fire on its lid. Now, we should notice, like, this sounds a lot like back when Mephistopheles was, you know, tapping the table at the the Leipzig Tavern um, and making whatever wine or beer or other drink that he was asked for spit out of the spigots that he had, had, like, tapped into it. Um, Again, the devil... Uh, can produce whatever, you know, good or whatever pleasure you want. And here we have the cigarettes taking very much the same place as the, the booze once upon a time. So again, we have a sort of Goethe reference here. But Goethe references aren't the only thing that the devil gives away as far as his character is concerned. He also drops a few references to what he does in his spare time. And this is where the foreigner cries, Bravo, you have perfectly repeated restless old Immanuel's thought in this regard. He's referring to Immanuel Kant, the great Enlightenment thinker. I remember we talked about him fairly briefly, but in the Enlightenment, all of that, you know, former piety, former faith is very much thrown over in favor of rationality. Um, Aquinas wasn't rational enough, and therefore Kant rejects the five proofs, but, as the foreigner adds, here's the hitch, he roundly demolished all five proofs, and then, as if mocking himself, constructed a sixth of his own. Obviously, like, Berlioz and Homeless both shoot down the Kantian proof as well, um, but at the same time, notice his response here. Precisely, precisely, he cried, and his green left eye turned to Berlioz, flashed. Just the place for him. Send Kant to prison, um, Berlioz suggests. Didn't I tell him that time at breakfast? As you will, Professor, but what you've thought up doesn't hang together. It's clever, maybe, but mighty unclear. You'll be laughed at. And Berlioz notices the problem here. At breakfast? To Kant? What is this drivel? Remember, Kant lived in the end of the 18th century. He's been dead for a hundred years at this point in time. And here we have our, our professor saying that he breakfasted with Kant. Either the professor is claiming to be 150 years old, or Kant is apparently not as dead as everyone thinks. At any rate, this is where Berlioz and Homeless start to suspect that the professor may not be who he says he is... But their conclusion is not that he is the devil, as, again, we sort of suspect, but rather that he is insane, that he is mad, which leads them to some fairly dark actions and conclusions. Um, Now... The devil keeps poking them about this, though, like having rejected the the five proofs of Aquinas and the sixth proof of Kant, he goes on to say, but here is a question that is troubling me. If there is no god, then one may ask, who governs human life, and in general, the whole order of things on earth? And Homeless immediately asks, man governs it himself, but the devil isn't going to buy this. Pardon me, the stranger responded gently, but in order to govern, one needs, after all, to have a precise plan for a certain, at least somewhat decent, length of time. Allow me to ask you, then, how can man govern if he is not only deprived of the opportunity of making a plan for at least some ridiculously short period, well, say, a thousand years, but cannot even vouch for his own tomorrow? And in fact, here the stranger turned to Berlioz, imagine that you, for instance, start governing, giving orders to others, and yourself generally, so to speak, acquire a taste for it, and suddenly you get, <coughs> lung cancer. Here the foreigner smiled sweetly as if the thought of lung cancer gave him pleasure. Yes, cancer. Narrowing his eyes like a cat, he repeated the sonorous word, and so your governing is over. You are no longer interested in anyone's fate but your own. Your family starts lying to you, feeling that something is wrong. You rush to learn doctors, then to quacks, and sometimes to fortune tellers as well. Like the first, so the second and third are completely senseless, as you understand. And it all ends tragically. A man who still recently thought he was governing something suddenly winds up lying motionless in a wooden box. And the people around him, seeing that the man lying there is no longer good for anything, burn him in an oven. Notice... What our foreign and foreign stranger seems to be suggesting here, he is basically saying how could you possibly think that you were governing yourselves when you can't even decide your own fates? People die too quickly to make plans for the human race, so how is the human race in fact governing itself? As he emphasizes, you can't even govern for the short period of a thousand years because you have no idea whether or not you're going to wake up dead in the morning. And he even emphasizes this specifically to Berlioz. Sometimes it's worse still. The man has just decided to go to Kislavodsk. Here the foreigner squinted at Berlioz, a trifling matter it seems, but even this he cannot accomplish because suddenly, no one knows why, he slips and falls under a tram car. Are you going to say, was he who governed himself that way? Would it not be more correct to think that he was governed by someone else entirely? And here the unknown man burst into a strange little laugh. Now Berlioz knows he's talking about him. He's not sure why. It seems like just a coincidence. But Berlioz was just himself thinking of going to Kislevodsk for his vacation. He's sick and tired of running his little, you know magazine and and bossing homeless around so he's thinking of taking a break but notice that the devil specifically points this out to him you think you are governing you think you are giving orders you think you have a future and yet who's to say maybe you'll fall under a tram car and of course Berlioz does fall under a tram car um so notice this is what the devil is emphasizing as our seventh proof here So the devil is specifically asked, like Berlioz specifically says to him, you know, that uh, he he challenges the devil. He challenges him to tell him exactly how he's going to die. Um, So he says, maybe you know what kind precisely, Berlioz inquired, with perfectly natural irony, getting drawn into an utterly absurd conversation, and will tell me? Like, Berlioz is like, I'm sick and tired of listening to this guy's nonsense. Go ahead, tell me how I'm going to die. Tell me exactly how I'm going to die. And the stranger says, willingly. He looked Berlioz up and down as if he were going to make him a suit, muttered through his teeth something like, one, two, Mercury in the second house, moon gone, six, disaster, evening, seven, then announced loudly and joyfully, your head will be cut off. Homeless goggled his eyes wildly and spitefully at the brash stranger, and Berlioz asked, grinning crookedly, "'By whom, precisely? Enemies? Interventionists?' "'No,' replied his interlocutor, "'by a Russian woman, a Kamaz girl.'" "'Hmm,' Berlioz mumbled, vexed at the stranger's little joke. "'Well, excuse me, but that's not very likely.'" "And "'I beg you to excuse me,' the foreigner replied, "'but it's so.'" "'Ah, yes, I wanted to ask you, what are you going to do tonight if it's not a secret?' "'It's not a secret. Right now I'll stop by my place at Sedovaya, and then at ten this evening there will be be a meeting at Masalit, and I will chair it.' "'No, that simply cannot be,' the foreigner objected firmly. "'Why not?' "'Because,' the foreigner replied, and, narrowing his eyes, looked into the sky, where, anticipating the cool of the evening, black birds were tracing noiselessly. "'Anushka has already bought the sunflower oil, and has not only bought it, but has already spilled it. "'So the meeting will not take place.' Notice, our mysterious stranger has access to information that none of the other characters are aware of, though we will be made aware of it when in Chapter 3, Berlioz goes to call the secret police, slips on the sunflower oil that Anushka herself dropped, falls under the tram car that a woman is driving, and will be decapitated, just as the stranger predicted. And notice that the, seventh, the third chapter where all of this happens is called The Seventh Proof. The seventh proof that the devil teases here is the proof of prophecy, the fact that the devil can make this happen in all likelihood, because that's what he's insinuating here. When Berlioz says, you know, humans govern themselves, the devil just laughs at him. Since when? Since when has any human governed themselves? Since when does any human control their own life or death for that matter? Stuff happens at a left field that people can't control. Like, do you really think you're in control of your own life? That's ridiculous. So, the devil says, here is the situation. I can see all of the causes and effects, all the springs in the way that the universe works. You will die unexpectedly, and no, you will not go to your fancy mass elite meeting. You will die because you will slip and fall and get your head cut off by a tram car. And what's more, the devil even goes so far to say in Chapter 3 that he will be living at... Berlioz's apartment, that when Berlioz says, you know, where are you going to live and recommends this one hotel, the the devil says, you know, I'll be living in your apartment because it's not like you're going to be occupying it. And we will see the devil take residence in Berlioz's former apartment. Um, So all of this is the devil. This is our professor, our mysterious foreigner first telling us that he is the devil and also emphasizing that he is in control of the situation. That's the joke here, and that's the sort of horrific irony here, that Berlioz and Homeless are sitting here talking about how ridiculous it is to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, and by extension to believe in the devil, and the devil presents his seventh proof, his absolute unquestionable proof. Yeah, I'm here. What are you going to do about it? All your fancy theories, all your big ideas, all your so-called power to govern yourselves... Here I am, fucking you up, what are you gonna do, Berlioz? Try and be an atheist now. So there's something kind of ridiculous about the whole interaction, because they are literally telling the devil to his face, you don't exist, naturally he's a little offended by this. Um, Bemused, ironic, and Bulgakov is certainly enjoying this scene as it plays out, but also a little offended. Notice, too, though, that the real offense here does not take place when, you know, they tell him to his face that the devil does not exist. The real offense is when they start to think that he's mad. Now, they sit down and, you know, like, they, the devil ultimately corrects them in chapter 1, saying that Jesus did in fact exist, and the reason why he knows this is because he actually spent time with him. So he says, bear in mind that Jesus did exist at the end of chapter one. And Berlioz responds, you see, professor, we respect your great learning, but on this question we hold to a different point of view. Again, Berlioz is saying, but perspective, our perspective is that Jesus did not exist and you have no right to tell us otherwise. But the devil responds, there's no need for any points of view. He simply existed, that's all. But there's need for some proof. There's no need for any proofs, replied the professor. It's all very simple, in a white cloak with blood-red lining, and he immediately transitions to the story that we're told in chapter 2 about Pilate and Jesus. And he tells us in chapter 3, he was there. He was on the porch with Pilate and with Jesus, hiding, admittedly, secretly, but there nonetheless. And what's more, he watched Jesus live. He was there to see it happen. Um, Therefore, there's no need for proof because he was personally an eyewitness. You don't prove things that you see with your own eyes. And this seventh proof that he is presenting is physical evidence. I am the devil. I can decide what happens to you. I can predict the future, absolutely. Can you question me after that happens? After Berlioz's head goes bounding off into the streets of Moscow? Who's going to gainsay me at this point? But notice... That, his, that the response, when he talks about, you know, all of this, things, this stuff with Pilate when he asserts that he's going to be living in Berlioz's apartment, Berlioz's response is not to think that he's insane anymore. Like, yes, it's possibly true, but things are getting more dangerous for Berlioz. Notice, too, though, that Berlioz questions him the wrong way. Like, after the devil delivers this long speech about Pilate, which, again, we will get back to, I promise, it is super important, um, after the devil explains his whole speech about Pilate and the, the confrontation with Yeshua Nazri, we finally get Homeless and Berlioz waking up as if they were, like, in a dream this whole time, but a dream they shared, and Berlioz asks, your story is extremely interesting, Professor, though it does not coincide at all with the gospel stories. Notice, why does Berlioz care that it doesn't line up with the Gospels? Like, he literally just spent in chapter 1 this whole speech talking about how the Gospels are nonsense, how they were written by liars, how, you know, there's no evidence in Josephus or in Philo of Alexandria, and the the Tacitus evidence is is supposedly nonsense. Which, P.S., Two of those three are totally false. Jesus does show up in Josephus. And the line from Tacitus, most scholars these days agree that it was a thing that, in fact, Tacitus wrote. Um, As much as Berlioz stresses that it's an interpolation, scholars today disagree. This was just communist byline. Possibly communist propaganda in its own right. Berlioz is wrong. But what's more, here Berlioz challenges the professor not on the grounds of making up nonsense but because it doesn't line up with the Gospels, as though the Gospels do have some truth to them. But what's more, as the conversation goes on, as you've got this devil character saying, not only did Jesus exist, but he was there, he saw it happen, Berlioz is starting to get nervous. And notice the way that this plays out on pages 40 to 41. So we have the devil saying, I just arrived in Moscow this very minute. Um, And the Berlioz responds, there's the whole explanation for you. A mad German has told up or just went crazy at the ponds. What a story. Yes, indeed, Bulgakov tells us in Berlioz's thoughts. That explained the whole thing. The most strange breakfast with the late philosopher Kant, the foolish talk about sunflower oil and Anushka, the predictions about his head being cut off and all the rest. The professor was mad. Berlioz realized at once what had to be done. Leading back on the bench, he winked to Homeless behind the professor's back, meaning don't contradict him, but the perplexed poet did not understand these signals. Berlioz is trying to calm the professor down. Let's not contradict him, he is thinking, and he's trying to communicate this to Homeless and, and failing. So he says, yes, 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 incidentally, it's all possible, even very possible, Pontius pilot, the balconies, so forth. Did you come alone or with your wife? Like, he's trying to change the subject, He's trying to get the professor onto something that will rile him up less. Like, if he's getting super defensive about Jesus and super defensive about God and super defensive about this whole story about Pilate, well, let's get him onto something that doesn't rile him up so much. Let's not make a scene, Berlioz says. So he says, you know, did you come alone? And he says, yes, I'm alone. Where are your things? At the Metropole, where are you staying? Nowhere, but where are you going to live? At... At your apartment. And Berlioz realizes he's not in safe territory anyway. Asking these mundane questions has just led him into more craziness. Um, So he tries to get out of this situation here. I'm very glad, but really you won't be comfortable at my place. And they have wonderful rooms at the Metropole. It's a first class hotel. Like he's like, no, you you don't want to stay with me. Like as though this was an invitation. Um, But then homeless missing the point, starts to contradict him again. So the professor asks, and there's no devil either? No devil? And don't contradict him, Berlioz whispers to Homeless. There isn't any devil, Homeless tells us. What a punishment. Stop playing the psycho. And now he's well and truly riled up. Well, now that is positively interesting, the professor said, shaking with laughter. What is it with you? No matter what one asks for, there isn't any. No devil, no God, you just deny everything, he seems to say. He suddenly stopped laughing, and quite understandably for a mentally ill person, fell into the opposite extreme after laughing, became vexed, and cried sternly, so you mean there just simply isn't any? Now, Berlioz realizes that he's in danger right now. This is why he ultimately gets up to make the phone call. So he says, "'Calm down, calm down, calm down, Professor,' Berlioz muttered, for fear of agitating the sick man. "'You sit here for a little minute with Comrade Homeless, "'and I'll just run to the corner to make a phone call, and then we'll take you wherever you like. "'You don't know the city.'" Berlioz's plan must be acknowledged as correct. He had to run to the nearest public telephone and inform the Foreigners Bureau. Thus and so, there's some consultant from abroad sitting at the patriarch's ponds in an obviously abnormal state, so it was necessary to take measures." lest some unpleasant nonsense result. Notice, the unpleasant nonsense that Berlioz is worried about isn't that the stranger is is going to make some scene and therefore get himself committed. The unpleasant nonsense is that Berlioz is afraid of what might transpire. See, this is Soviet Russia, we are concerned about potential spies disseminating democracy undermining the Stalinist regime. So random foreigners hanging around talking to people is itself kind of a dangerous business. You have no idea what it is that they want. Now, Stalin is pretty quick to include a bunch of foreigners in the Soviet world. Like, he's eager to invite people over to show how great the Soviet world is. How, you know, efficient the Communist party has been in creating this society he is eager to make foreigners comfortable in short in order to show off how great this world is but at the same time the questions that this particular foreigner is asking are all about Jesus they're all about religion they're all about God they're all about the devil he seems to be asking questions that could get Berlioz in trouble with the communist party if in fact he was heard talking about them so notice that Berlioz is constantly insisting, no, there was no Jesus, no, there was no God, no, there was no no devil, and homeless seems to be echoing this. Um, but at the same time, like Berlioz finds that he's either going to be drawing attention to himself by agitating this foreigner and thus possibly getting everyone riled up, caught up in this possible like plot or espionage. But on the other hand, if he's going to try and calm the foreigner down, he's got to say things that the communist party would not like. Sure, maybe there was a Jesus, maybe there was a devil, etc., etc., etc. Um, this is a bad situation. If he's heard saying this, he could get in serious trouble. So he's going to make a call not to like get the foreigner protected or to figure out what's going on, but to cover his own ass. The dangerous business that he finds himself in is he needs to, you know, report this guy before he gets wrapped up in something that could end up falling down around his ears. The last thing Berlioz wants is to be condemned as a subversive or a spy or a Christian or any number of enemies to the Communist Party. This is bad news. So he goes to make a call and report the professor. And this is exactly the moment that the professor says to make a call. Well, then make your call. But I implore you, before you go, at least believe that the devil exists. I no longer ask you for anything more. Mind you, there exists a seventh proof of it, the surest of all, and it is going to be presented to you right now. This is where the devil threatens him. This is where the seventh proof is promised. This is where the devil puts his actions into motion, and where Berlioz will ultimately lose his life. Notice, Berlioz gets scared. Berlioz goes to condemn this foreigner who he knows nothing about, and it's here, now, when he is caught doing something cowardly, that the devil gets on his case and takes him out. Now, the reason why I stress this is because this is also what's going on in the section with Pilate and Yeshua. This dynamic that Berlioz is a part of here, this dynamic of being afraid that the authorities are going to come down on you and therefore trying to potentially throw somebody else under the bus in order to cover your own butt, this is something that Bulgakov is going to be very interested in over the course of this story. And notice how it plays out here with this story about Pilate and Yeshua. Now, I realize this is a tough section to read. Like, it's a radically different tone from the rest of the book. It goes a lot slower than the rest of the book. It's not nearly as funny as the rest of the book. And yet, as much as you might want to just, like, write it off and ignore it, you really can't in order to understand what's going on, what Bulgakov is doing. So let's set the stage here again, because once again we need another series of contexts. Here we are talking about the passion of the Christ. These are the stories that are told in all four of the Gospels. Pilate is the famous guy who condemns Jesus to death. He is the Roman proconsul, um, the procurator, who you know has all of the, the government power in this case. And this is a tricky situation. Like, if you were not familiar with, with the, the world in early Christendom and, like, when Jesus was alive, um, this is a fairly complex and tricky political situation. At this point in history, the Jews have been relocated back to Israel, but it's been kind of rough. Around 500 BCE, they were carried off to Babylon by the Babylonians. Shortly after that, they were relocated back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem and back to Israel when Cyrus released them and the Persians took over Babylon but then the Greeks took over all of the world as they know it with Alexander the Great and in the process conquered the Jews and sort of subjected them to Greek rule and there were a lot of problems there the Jews ultimately rebelled against them successfully won their freedom just in time for the Romans to show up and basically do the same thing now the Romans aren't terrible as governors go but their convictions and their beliefs sort of do not jive with the way that the Jews like to run themselves. Specifically, the Jews insist that there is only one God. Um, there is only the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. And that that God is the only one they can worship, that they will have no idols, that they can worship no other gods, that they cannot take his name in vain. They're very serious about worshiping this God. They refuse to accept any other idols, any other... Um, Belief systems. And what's more, this belief is so strict that the Jews believe themselves set apart. Um, They have these elaborate rituals and elaborate legal requirements that include never interacting with Gentiles, i.e., non Jews. This becomes a problem when the Romans show up because the Romans are Gentiles across the board. Um, they, the Jews are now governed by Gentiles. Um, they are responsible to, you know, interact with Gentiles on a day-to-day basis. And yet their cleanliness laws forbid them from being able to do this. So if a Jew so much as bumps into a centurion on the street, they are now ritually unclean and now they've got to go bathe and they've got to like take care of their, their purification rituals before they can even present sacrifice or even spend time in their own homes. Like, it's a tense business. It's very inconvenient for everyone around. And what's more, by this time, when Jesus is alive in like the first century AD, it's gotten to the point that like the Jews have started revolting against the Roman uh, governing presence on a fairly regular basis, which means that Palestine is a shitty province to govern if you are in fact a Roman governor. Like, Pilate is probably in this situation as this sort of backwater post that he's been dumped on, probably because he ticked someone off at the top echelon of the Emperor's power. Um, And Pilate hates being in Palestine. Like, notice that he wakes up here with a headache... And it will not go away. And he hates everything about his situation. He hates the smell. He hates, you know, the fact that he's got to, like, sit in the sun all day. And part of the reason why he's got to do this is because, like, one of the restrictions that the Jews have is you cannot be under the same roof as a Gentile without also being ritually unclean. So just the fact that they're having court here with Jewish citizens means that they have to do it, like, in this open air court with the sun beating down. It sucks. Um, But what's more, he's got to be super careful, because if the Jews rise up again, then he's going to be in trouble with his superiors. Um, On the one hand, he's got to keep the Jews happy and keep them from revolting because of their elaborate religious practices. On the other hand, he's got to keep Caesar happy. He's got to, you know, make sure that he follows the rules and reports to his superiors correctly. What's more... It's Passover, which is one of the big Jewish festivals in which everybody comes back to Jerusalem. And this capital, Yer Shalayim, as Bulgakov puts it, Jerusalem as we know it, um, is just running amok with Jews. It is packed to the gills. This is a perfect time for revolt. And in the past, revolts typically happen at the time of Passover or the other major Jewish festivals. So Pilate is absolutely walking on eggshells all the time. He's playing this very delicate balance of Roman power on the one hand and Jewish, you know, comfort on the other. And in this situation, we run into Yeshua HaNazri, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, in the Gospels, what ultimately happens is Jesus gets caught by the Sanhedrin, like the the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Um, Jesus has been saying all kinds of crazy stuff about how, like, the the Pharisees are all bad and hypocritical, He's, which, you know, makes the, the Sanhedrin very unhappy because most of them are Pharisees. He's also saying things like the temple's going to be torn down and a new one is going to be raised up in its place. And at one point, according to the the gospel writer John... Jesus even goes so far as to say that he is God, like he himself is God, which ticks off everyone because this is like the highest possible blasphemy that anyone can utter. And so to try and like keep the peace and get rid of this thorn in their side, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, all the priests at the time, capture him, arrest him, and then turn him over for prosecution. See, the Pharisees can't just execute whoever they want anymore. Like the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders at the time, they can't just kill people the way that they used to. Um, Once upon a time, when the Jews were free to govern themselves, they would be the most powerful governing body. And if they felt it necessary to execute someone, either in accordance with the, the Jewish law or in accordance with the scriptures they'd be able to do it. But now, now that the Roman the Romans are in charge, if they want somebody executed, they've got to turn them turn this person over to Pilate, the procurator, um, or to one of the other Roman functionaries, and they will be the ones that decide whether or not this person lives or dies. So here we have Yeshua HaNazri picked out by the Sanhedrin, condemned to death by the Sanhedrin, and now he is turned over to Pilate to see if he's going to carry out the sentence. This is the case in both the Gospels and in Bulgakov's story here. All of that seems to line up. Where it differs, though, is what we're going to talk about here. Because the story that Bulgakov tells us, the story of Pilate and Yeshua confronting one another and Pilate's ultimate decisions, while it ultimately, on the big picture, follows the story of the Gospels pretty closely, as Berlioz points out, it does not follow exactly. And Bulgakov actually makes some fairly significant, fairly deliberate, and fairly explicit deviations from the gospel story. Um, So here we have the procurator gets up. It's time for another day of, like, court and talking to witnesses. And notice that he is, again, miserable. He is suffering. He has this awful headache. It's absolutely terrible, this hemocrania that he talks about. He is positively miserable. He is completely annoyed. He doesn't want to deal with any of this crap and then we get Yeshua Hanazri so the, we get the introduction of this character at Once, two legionnaires brought a man of about 27 from the garden terrace to the balcony under the columns and stood him before the procurator's chair. The man was dressed in an old and torn light blue chiton. His head was covered by a white cloth with a leather band around the forehead and his hands were bound behind his back. Under the man's left eye, there was a large bruise. In the corner of his mouth, a cut caked with blood. The man gazed at the procurator with anxious curiosity. Notice, this also lines up with the Gospel story. This man has been beaten. Um, But according to the Gospels, Jesus was whipped and beaten and even given a crown of thorns over his head to further cause him suffering. Um, The Romans laughed and mocked him as they beat him, because he claimed to be the son of God and the king of the Jews. So Pilate sees this man who has obviously been badly handled and asks quietly in Aramaic the language that the Jews would have been speaking um, to the, each other rather than like in public, like the, the common language at the time for trade and stuff that the, even the Romans would have used would have been Greek, as we'll see Pilate use later. And he asks in Aramaic, so it was you who incited the people to destroy the Temple of Jerusalem?" The procurator sat as if made of stone while he spoke, and only his lips moved slightly as he pronounced the words. The procurator was as if made of stone because he was afraid to move his head, aflame with internal pain, or rather infernal pain, devilish pain. The procurator is in such pain that he is trying to exert himself as little as possible. And yet the man leans forward with his bound hands and says, good man, believe me, but the procurator cuts him off motionless as before and not raising his voice in the least, straight away interrupted him, is it me that you are calling a good man? You are mistaken. It is whispered about me in Yershalayim that I am a fierce monster, and this is perfectly correct. And he added in the same monotone, bring the centurion rat slayer. A couple things about this. Notice that the first thing that Yeshua says to Pilate, the first like name that he gives him is good man. And we will notice that Yeshua calls everybody good man. Like, Pilate even draws attention to this a little bit later. But it is not the form of address that Pilate has earned. As the procurator, he gets a formal address, and everybody needs to call him by this formal address, or potentially be punished, as he does now. So when Rat Slayer, this giant, ugly centurion, comes in, the procurator says, The criminal calls me good man. Take him outside for a moment. Explain to him how I ought to be spoken to but no maiming. And Ratslayer does. He takes him outside, he whips him once across the back, explains that the procurator is supposed to be called Hegemon, and that he will beat him again if Yeshua screws up again. So naturally, Yeshua says, I understand, don't beat me, he's brought before the procurator again, and we try this again. Name? Pilot asks. Mine, the arrested man hastily responded, his whole being expressing a readiness to answer sensibly without provoking further wrath, he doesn't want to get hit again, so he's being super-duper careful. And, of course, Pilot is annoyed by this as well. I know my own. Don't pretend to be stupider than you are. Yours. Your name. Yeshua, the prisoner replied promptly. Any surname? Hanazri. Where do you come from? The town of Gamala replied the prisoner, indicating with his head that there, somewhere far off to the right in the north, was the town of Gamala. Who are you by blood? I don't know exactly, the arrested man replied animatedly. I don't remember my parents. I was told that my father was a Syrian. Now notice this is one of our deviations here. For Bulgakov, Yeshua is apparently an orphan of sorts. At the very least, he doesn't know who his parents in fact are. Um, By contrast, Like, the story of Jesus' parents is one of the biggest stories in the Bible. Everybody repeats it for Christmas because that's the story the Christmas story is based on. In theory, Jesus was the son of Mary the Virgin, who, you know, like, God had miraculously given her the son, you know, born while Mary was... was still uh, Joseph's fiance. And, you know, it was the immaculate conception. Technically, that's Mary, but like it was a conception. It was the virgin birth. Like she was a virgin and still gave birth to this Jesus. Um, Joseph was his father, at least ostensibly on earth. Like Jesus knew who his parents were. But here, Bulgakov tells us that he is an orphan. That He doesn't know who his parents were. Um, So already we are moving away from the typical christian tradition um so Pilate goes on where is your permanent residence i have no permanent home the prisoner asked shyly i travel from town to town that can be put more briefly in a word a vagrant the procurator said and asked any family none i'm alone in the world can you read and write yes do you know any language beside aramaic yes greek a swollen eyelid rose, an eye clouded with suffering, fixed the arrested man. The other eye remained shut. Pilate spoke in Greek. So it was you who, were going, who was going to destroy the temple building and called on the people to do that. Here the prisoner again became animated. His eyes ceased to show fear and he spoke in Greek. Never good, And he stops. Here, terror flashed in the prisoner's eyes because he had nearly made a slip. He had almost called Pilate good man again and would have gotten beaten if he had. But notice that the habit is well entrenched. He's pretty close to calling everybody a good man, so again, he needs to take a step back and remind himself. Never, hegemon, never in my life was I going to destroy the temple building, nor did I incite anyone to this senseless act. Now the secretary who is taking all these notes, is surprised at this. It's pretty rare for someone to utterly deny the charges made against him. And notice, too, that there is a secretary recording all this. Bulgakov will make reference to him pretty frequently throughout this. He is writing everything down as it transpires. All sorts of people gather in this found... For the feast, among them there are magicians, astrologers, diviners, and murderers, the procurator spoke in monotone, and occasionally also liars. You, for instance, are a liar. It is written clearly, incited to destroy the temple. People have testified to it. These good people, the prisoner spoke and hastily adding, hegemon, went on, haven't any learning and have confused everything I told them. Generally, I'm beginning to be afraid that this confusion may go on for a very long time, and all because he writes down the things I say incorrectly we have to unpack this one. Notice first that he refers to everyone, including the people who are telling lies about him or spreading misinformation. Again, they are all good people. And notice that immediately after he says good people, he adds hegemon because he's worried that he's going to get beaten again. Like he associates calling Pilot or anyone good people in this room with getting beaten. So he covers himself. But notice, too, that he says that everyone is confused. They're taking what he says incorrectly. And especially because he, namely, as he will clarify in a moment, Matthew Levi, writes down the things I say incorrectly. Notice that he emphasizes this. No, no, hegemon. There's one with a goatskin parchment who follows me, follows me and keeps writing all the time, but once I peeked into this parchment and was horrified, I said decidedly nothing of what's written there. I employed him, burn your parchment for God's sake, but he tore it out of my hands and ran away. And when asked, he says that it is Matthew Levi, the tax collector, who is doing this. Now, if you don't know, Matthew is the first gospel recorded in the Bible. Like, the four gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was, in Bulgakov's day, thought to be the first of the gospels that were written. And that all the other gospels were, directly or indirectly, based on that one. With the exception of John. Like, John's weird. Um, so when Yeshua, here in Bulgakov's retelling of the story, explains that Matthew has been writing his speeches down incorrectly, that he is writing a pack of lies, Bulgekov is suggesting that the Gospels are themselves false, that they are lies, which is one more indication that things are not what they seem. This is, again, why Berlioz points out later that this does not line up with the Gospel story, though, again, we should question why Berlioz is so protective of the Gospels. So, once again, we are in uncharted territory. Bulgakov's version of Yeshua and Pilate is meant to be different from the one reported in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, As far as Bulgakov is concerned, those Gospels are lies. And this brings him more in line with the Communist Party's line. Again, like he is repudiating religion here. He is saying that the religious writings are false. As... Pilate is sort of dealing with all this new information this this claim by you know Yeshua that Matthew is lying and that the people are getting his information wrong and that you know he he in fact does not like did not tell anyone to destroy the temple Pilate ultimately is getting more and more frustrated about this So notice there's this long passage about Pilate's frustration on page 20. His teeth still bared, the procurator glanced at the arrested man, then at the sun, steadily rising over the equestrian statues of the Hippodrome, which lay far below to the right, and suddenly, in some sickening anguish, thought that the simplest thing would be to drive this strange robber off the balcony by uttering just two words, hang him. To drive the convoy away as well, to leave the colonnade, go into the palace, order the room darkened, collapse on the bed, send for cold water, call in a plaintive voice for his dog Banga, and complain to him about the hemocrania. And the thought of poison suddenly flashed temptingly in the procurator's sick head. Notice the details here pilot is still suffering from the headache it's only getting worse and why wouldn't it he's talking to this crazy person and he's dealing with all these stupid legal crap and it's just so annoying and it's dragging on too long he's tempted to just call to say to call it to say hang him and be done with it like just go back to his room cover up the windows as much as he possible as he possibly can get a glass of water and just hang out with his dog for a while complain to his dog about how miserable he feels. And for that matter, he's thinking of poison. He's considering suicide here. So he can he proceeds with the investigation. Matthew Levi, yes, Matthew Levi. And what was it in any case that you said about the temple to the crowd in the bazaar? The responding voice seemed to stab at Pilate's temple, was inexpressibly painful, and this voice was saying, I said, Hegemon, that the temple of the old faith would fall, and a new temple of truth would be built. I said it that way so as to make it more understandable. And why did you stir up the people in the bazaar, you vagrant, talking about the truth of which you have no notion? What is truth? Pilate asks. Now, notice a couple things here. First off, Yeshua tells us that he's not inciting people to tear down the temple. That was a miscommunication. That was incorrectly stated. People are misconstruing what he had to say. Instead, what he's saying is the temple of the old faith will fall and the new temple will be built. And, strangely, this lines up with the Gospels. Like, Jesus never did tell people to tear down the old temple, he never incited a rebellion, but he did say the old temple will be turned down, and that made people mad. But notice the legalism here. Jesus does not incite rebellion, and therefore he is not committing a crime, as far as Pilate is concerned. Like, Pilate doesn't give a shit about the temple. Pilate doesn't give a shit about blasphemy. Pilate is here to enforce Roman law, not Jewish faith. So if the Sanhedrin, if the priests are mad at him, that's their problem. And Pilate doesn't have to give a crap. Now, Pilate does make an error here. He's like, well, why are you making them mad at all? Why are you talking about the truth? What is truth? And this, too, is directly from the Gospels. In the Gospel of John, like, after Pilate is sort of talking to Jesus, he asks this question, what is truth? Like, what, does any, what do any of us have to do with the truth? Here you are talking about being king of kings, son of God, whatever, that this is the truth. What do I care? What is truth? But notice Yeshua's response here. The truth, first of all, is that your head aches and aches so badly that you're having faint-hearted thoughts of death. You're not only unable to speak to me, but it is even hard for you to look at me, and I am now your unwilling torturer, which upsets me. You can't even think about anything, and only dream that your dog should come, apparently the one being you are attached to, but your suffering will soon be over. Your headache will go away. The secretary goggled his eyes at the prisoner and stopped writing in mid-word. Pilot raised his tormented eyes to the prisoner and saw that the suns already stood quite high over the hippodrome. That a ray had penetrated the colonnade and was stealing towards Yeshua's worn sandals and that the man was trying to step out of the sun's way. Here the procurator rose from his chair, clutched his head with his hands, and his yellowish, shaven face expressed dread, but he instantly suppressed it with his will and lowered himself into his chair again. The prisoner, meanwhile, continued his speech, but the secretary was no longer writing it down and only stretched his neck like a goose, trying not to let drop a single word. Well there, it's all over the arrested man said, glancing benevolently at Pilate, and I am extremely glad of it. I'd advise you, Hegemon, to leave the palace for a while and go for a stroll somewhere in the vicinity, say in the gardens, on the Mountain of Olives. A storm will come, the prisoner turned, narrowing his eyes at the sun, later on, towards evening. A stroll would do you much good, and I would be glad to accompany you. Certain new thoughts have occurred to me, which I think you might find interesting, and I'd willingly share them with you, the more so as you give the impression of being a very intelligent man. The secretary turned deathly pale and dropped the scroll on the floor. The trouble is, the bound man went on, not stopped by anyone, that you were too closed off and have definitively lost faith in people. You must agree, one can't place all one's affection in a dog. Your life is impoverished, hegemon. And here the speaker allowed himself to smile. Notice, Pilate asks, what is truth? And Yeshua gives him truth truth specifically tailored to, to Pilate's situation and not just truth but a compassionate truth yeshua feels for Pilate, as he opens up you have this awful headache you're having faint-hearted thoughts of death you're considering suicide he gets into pilot's innermost thoughts and he goes on to say and now i am your unwilling torture and i wish i wasn't it upsets me all you want is to go back to your room dream that your dog should come But he will even go so far as to criticize him. You must agree that having only your connection to your dog is a bad thing. Like, here is the prisoner, trotted out, his life hangs by a hair, as Pilate is quick to say later, and Pilate is, like, being lectured by him. The prisoner, the one who is about to die, who must appreciate his situation, who was beaten just moments ago, is talking about how... He, how bad Pilate feels, how much he feels for him, how he should just go for a walk, how he should just, you know, get out of the the city for a while. Jesus says all of these things to him. Yeshua tells him this. And the secretary can't even believe it. Like, this is hugely inappropriate. Like, this guy is just asking to die. You know, if, like, the secretary has seen Pilate kill people for less, like, this is incredibly dishonorable. This this Yeshua presumes to know what Pilate is thinking, presumes to prescribe for Pilate what he sh- what he is feeling, presumes to accuse Pilate of having suicidal thoughts, of being you know sick and upset and you know weak. How dared he? He is just asking for trouble, and yet again, it is the truth. This is what we have seen about Pilate every step of the way so far. This is capital T truth. It is exactly what Pilate asked for and it is exactly what Yeshua is giving him and it is absolutely inappropriate and everyone expects him to die as a consequence. And yet Yeshua is fearless when he presents this. It is the truth. Why shouldn't he say it? Then came the cracked hoarse voice of the procurator who said in Latin, Unbind his hands. One of the convoy legionaries, wrapped with his spear, handed it to another, went over and took the ropes off the prisoner. The secretary picked up his scroll, having decided to record nothing for now and to be surprised at nothing. Admit, Pilate asked softly in Greek, that you were a great physician. No, procurator, I am not a physician. I didn't ask you. Maybe you also know Latin. Yes, I do. And Pilate asks, how did you know I wanted to call my dog? It's very simple, the prisoner replied in Latin. You were moving your hand in the air, the prisoner repeated Pilate's gesture, as if you wanted to stroke something. And your lips? Yes, said Pilate. There was silence. And so you are a physician? No, no. Believe me, I'm not a physician. Notice the interaction here. Notice how Yeshua has this preternatural insight. He reads directly into Pilate's innermost thoughts, and when Pilate calls him out on this, so you're a doctor, Yeshua responds, no, I'm just, you know, I saw that you were moving your hand in a certain way, and I thought that you, that you wanted to pet your dog. Yeshua seems to be, like, crazy insightful, and yet it doesn't seem to be necessarily supernatural. Like, he shouldn't have this knowledge. People don't, aren't able to like read people's thoughts this clearly like we're talking you know sherlock holmes benedict cumberbatch level of like reading people at a glance but it doesn't necessarily have to be supernatural yeshua here is ambiguous at the very least we're not seeing any evidence of him saying that he's the son of god like one of the things that is crucial to the gospel accounts of this conversation between pilate and jesus is you know he says i am king of King, king of the Jews, son of God, that is my role. There's nothing you can do about it. And yet we don't see this in Yeshua. Instead, Yeshua is all compassion, all love, and all truth. When Pilate says, what is truth? Yeshua gives it to him. More than Pilate could have possibly expected. And now Pilate is sitting here wondering about this. And what's more, notice the headache disappears. Like after Yeshua's first paragraph, when he's talking about how he's having, you know, faint-hearted, heart, faint-hearted thoughts of death, like Pilate stands up, grabbing his head, and yet we are told by Yeshua a moment later, "Oh, it's passed. You don't feel it anymore." And it's true. Pilate doesn't feel it anymore. Here's this headache that he's been suffering from all morning. He can't imagine any cause that would make it go away, and yet Yeshua, by uttering truth, makes it evaporate in an instant. And maybe it's not just the truth. Maybe it's the fact that Yeshua is the only person in this entire story so far who is, you know, showing compassion to Pilate. Who is doing anything else than being suspicious or, you know, taking notes like the secretary or following orders like Slayer or, you know, potentially challenging him like Kaifa will do in a little while. Maybe it's just the compassion. But maybe it's a combination. Who knows? What Pilate figures out at this moment is that Yeshua, Yeshua's got something going on. Yeshua is is powerful in some way and Pilate wants to keep him around now the question he asks are you a physician are you a healer yeshua re- rejects this but pilot seems to still have his suspicions if you want to keep it a secret do so it has no direct bearing on the case So you maintain that you did not incite anyone to destroy, or set fire to, or in any other way demolish the temple. I repeat, I did not incite anyone to such acts, Hegemon. Do I look like a halfwit? Pilate, at this point, doesn't see any reason to condemn Yeshua. He wasn't inciting people to violence, it was clearly a misunderstanding. At the best, the guy is, you know, just, you know, kind of hapless and naive. At worst, he's nuts. Either way, he doesn't deserve to be killed for this. Um, And at the very least, if he's right, if he wasn't inciting any violence, he didn't commit any crime, no harm, no foul. So, the procurator asks him to swear. And Yeshua responds by, what do you want me to swear? And Pilate says, well, let's say by your life, the procurator replied. It's high time you swore by it, since it's hanging by a hair, I can tell you. Pilate points out, you know, Yeshua is in terrible danger. His life is hanging by a hair. But notice Yeshua's reply. You don't think it was you who hung it, Hegemon, the prisoner asked. If so, you are very mistaken. Pilate gave a start and replied through his teeth, I can cut that hair. And that too you are mistaken, the prisoner retorted, smiling brightly and shielding himself from the sun with his hand. You must agree that surely only he who hung it can cut the hair. This needs a lot of unpacking. So Pilate says, Pilate tells Yeshua, swear by your life. Like, I will accept that swear because, honestly, your life is hanging by a hair. Your answer to these questions will decide whether you live or die. And Yeshua says, no, it doesn't. Who hung the hair, Pilate? Pilate is acting as though he is the one who hung it. He is the one who can cut it. And Yeshua responds, no. The same person who hung the hair can cut the hair. So who hung the hair? The fact of the matter is, Pilate, for all of his supposed power in this situation, is in fact powerless. Now there are two ways to interpret what Yeshua is saying here. There's the way that Yeshua is probably interpreting it, and there's the way that Pilate is interpreting it. And we should be attentive to both. For Yeshua, it's almost certain that he's referring to God here. Yeshua is saying, you did not hang the hair. God hung the hair. God gave me my life. It was always tenuous. It was always dangerous. If anyone's going to cut it, it's going to be God. It is my fate to die, Yeshua is saying. It is part of his power. If he wants me to die, I will die. He hung the hair. He can cut it. And he is the only one who can cut it. Pilate cannot interrupt God's plans. Pilate, if he kills Yeshua, is just participating in God's plans. This was what it was always supposed to be. But Pilate doesn't interpret it that way. Pilate doesn't believe in in God this way. Pilate sees this as Caesar. Because at the end of the day, Pilate isn't going to be able to make the call. That's how this scene ends. Pilate, for all of his want, for all of his desire to save Yeshua... For all of his recognition that Yeshua has this power over Pilate, that he can save Pilate from his headaches, that he can alleviate his suffering, that he speaks the truth, that all of these great things about Yeshua are true. At the end of the day, whether or not Yeshua lives has much more to do with the law than it ever does with Pilate's own desires. If Pilate goes against Caesar's will, then ultimately Pilate will also die. So Pilate, in his fear, has to abide by Caesar's command. So when Yeshua says, it was not you who hung the hair, Pilate is forced to admit, yeah, he's right. Pilate enforces Caesar's will. He can't go against it. It's not his call whether to kill Yeshua or not. The only reason he was talking about killing Yeshua in the first place was because he violated that law. He incited a riot. Now that we've re- eliminated that, if he were to go ahead and kill him, which he theoretically could, it would be against the law and Pilate would be on the chopping block for this. But it gets worse. So Pilate asks him, Now I have no doubt that the idle loafers of Jerusalem followed at your heels. I don't know who hung such a tongue on you, but he hung it well. Incidentally, tell me, is it true that you entered Jerusalem by the Susa gate, riding on an ass, accompanied by a crowd of riffraff who shouted greetings to you as some kind of prophet? The prisoner glanced at the procurator in perplexity. I don't even have an ass, hegemon. I did enter Jerusalem by the Susa gate, but on foot, accompanied only by Matthew Levi, and no one shouted anything to me, because no one in Jerusalem knew me then. So again, we see a deviation from the Gospels. The story that we're referring to here is Palm Sunday, Jesus, like, sends his disciples into Jerusalem and says, you know, search for a donkey tied up to something. And they bring back the donkey and he rides in. And the entire crowd stops and they wave their palm fronds and they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, to the king of kings. And none of that happened, according to Yeshua here in Volgakov's account. He walked in on foot and Matthew Levi up jumped the story again. He exaggerated. More lies. Now... Pilate then goes on to ask him if he has any associations with rebels in the city. Do you happen to know, Pilate continued, without taking his eyes off the prisoner, such men as a certain Dysmus, another named Gestus, and a third named Barabbin? All three of these, as we know from later on in the text, are in fact criminals. They will also be executed. All four of them are on the chopping block for various reasons. Dysmus and Gestus are apparently thieves, who killed a Roman soldier in their thievery or in their revolt. Barabbas also killed someone while claiming to start a revolution. Um, these are also biblical figures. Deismus and Gestus will die crucified on the crosses next to Jesus in the Gospels. Barabbas, like in the story here, is released on the occasion of Passover, despite the fact that he's a violent, murderous criminal, and Yeshua didn't do anything wrong, really. But notice Yeshua's reply, I do not know these good people. Truly, truly. And Now tell me, Pilate asks, why is it that you use the words good people all the time? Do you call everyone that or what? Everyone, the prisoner replied. There are no evil people in the world. Notice Yeshua says straight out, he doesn't believe that anyone is evil. And Pilate's immediate response is first i hear of it but perhaps i know too little of life you needn't record anymore he addressed the secretary you read that in some greek book no i figured it out for myself and you preach it yes but take for instance the centurion mark the one known as Ratslayer. is he good Pilate challenges him this guy literally just beat the crap out of you for no good reason and enjoyed doing it you really want to call him good yes replied the prisoner True, he's an unhappy man. Since the good people disfigured him, he has become cruel and hard. I'd be curious to know who maimed him. Notice, Yeshua doesn't let up. Yes, Ratslayer beat him and smiled doing it, but he was abused as well. Others have disfigured him. He has become cruel and hard, Yeshua points out. Again, he speaks the truth. And yet notice, he's curious about those who maimed him, and he's also calling them good people. The people who disfigured Rat Slayer are good, Rat Slayer himself is good, Yeshua is good, Pilot is good, everybody is good. Without exception. They are made bad by their circumstances, and it's only skin deep according to Yeshua. Now Pilot explains exactly how this all went down. Apparently, he and Rat Slayer used to fight fight in the wars together, and there were a bunch of German like non-citizens of Rome who, you know, attack Rat Slayer and Pilate rescued them and like pulled them off him, but not before they like had disfigured his face pretty seriously. But what's more, Pilate is changing his mind here. We see a long paragraph here towards the bottom on page 24 where Pilate is putting the pieces together. He's finally figuring out what he's going to do. During its flight, a formula took shape in the now light and lucid head of the procurator. It went like this. The hegemon has looked into the case of the vagrant philosopher Yeshua, alias Han Nosri, and found in it no grounds for indictment. In particular, he has found not the slightest connection between the acts of Yeshua and the disorders that have lately taken place in Yerushalayim. The vagrant philosopher has proved to be mentally ill. Consequently, the procurator has not confirmed the death sentence on Hanazuri, passed by the Lesser Sanhedrin, but seeing that Hanazuri's mad utopian talk might cause disturbances in Yeshulayim, the procurator is removing Yeshua from Yeshulayim and putting him under confinement in Stratonian Caesarea on the Mediterranean. That is precisely where the procurator's residence was. Notice the plan here. First off, Pilate doesn't see any reason to condemn or accuse Yeshua. Like, yeah, he's got a little bit of wiggle room in here. He could, in theory, condemn him to death if he really wanted to. At the end of the day, he doesn't see any reason to condemn him. What's more, he doesn't see any connection between Yeshua and the other rebels. Dismas, Gestas, Barabbin. No reason to connect him to all of the unrest, all of the revolts that have been taking place lately. He's just sick, mentally ill. And as a consequence of his mental illness... Pilate sees that it is dangerous to leave him in the city. His mad utopian talk might cause trouble, so he is going to remove him from Jerusalem and instead put him in Stratonian Caesarea, which is where Pilate's house is. Notice why. Pilate wants him close. Pilate actually wants to hang out with this guy. Pilate wants to visit him often. Pilate wants him to take care of his headaches, Pilate wants him to speak the truth, Pilate wants him to feel compassion to him, and he feels compassionate towards Yeshua as well. Pilate sees a happy ending here. Yeshua gets out, he is not condemned for his crimes, Pilate gets comforted, everyone wins. But there's a problem, namely that that's not all there was. So Pilate asked the secretary, is that all about him? And unfortunately not, the secretary replied unexpectedly, and handed Pilate another piece of parchment. What's this now? Pilate asked, and frowned. Having read what had been handed to him, he changed countenance even more. Either the dark blood rose to his neck and face, or something else happened, only his skin lost its yellow tinge, turned brown, and his eyes seemed to sink. Again, it was probably owing to the blood rising to his temples and throbbing in them, only something happened to the procurator's vision. Thus he imagined that the prisoner's head floated off somewhere, and another appeared in its place. On this bald head sat a scant, pointed golden diadem. On the forehead was a round canker, eating into the skin and smeared with ointment. A sunken, toothless mouth with a pendulous, capricious lower lip. It seemed to Pilate that the pink columns of the balcony and the rooftops of Yershalayim far below, beyond the garden, vanished, and everything was drowned in the thickest green of Caprian gardens. And something strange also happened to his hearing. It was as if trumpets sounded far away, muted and menacing, and a nasal voice was cl- very clearly heard, arrogantly drawling the law of least majesty. In this moment, when Pilot thinks everything's going to work out, when he finds an out for both him and Yeshua where they can both coexist happily where Yeshua can live nearby and Pilate can visit him often and no problems in the city and no one gets condemned to death. He reads what the secretary has the second charge and he realizes that Yeshua is screwed. The vision that he has here is Yeshua's head floating away and being replaced with Caesar's head. Caesar far away in Rome but whose power is absolute. Because the violation that Yeshua has committed is against the law of least majesty. It is against the law of Roman authority. It denies Caesar's power. And this is way more serious than some religious conflict between the priests in Jerusalem and this random, possibly mad traveler who's wandering around inciting the crowd to rebellion was bad but it wasn't that bad and if it is true that like his words were misconstrued then that's not his fault he doesn't deserve to die but if this guy said something against caesar Pilate's hands are tied there's nothing he can do thoughts raced short incoherent and extraordinary i'm lost then we're lost and among them, a totally absurd one about some immortality, which immortality, for some reason, provoked unendurable anguish. Pilate strained, drove the apparition away. His gaze returned to the balcony, and again the prisoner's eyes were before him. Listen, Han Nasri, the procurator spoke, looking at Yeshua somehow strangely. The procurator's face was menacing, but his eyes were alarmed. Did you ever say anything about the great Caesar? Answer. Did you? Yes. Or no. Pilate drew the word no out somewhat longer than is done in court, and his glance sent Yeshua some thought that he wished as if to instill in the prisoner. Now we're going to hear from Yeshua in a moment what it is that he said. We're going to hear that the, the line that he said was, you know... Um, Among other things, the prisoner recounted, I said that all power is violence over people and that a time will come when there will be no power of the Caesars nor any other power. Man will pass into the kingdom of truth and justice where generally there will be no need for any power at all. In short, Yeshua said, like the line that he actually said, not the trumped up version, was that the power of the Caesar is going to pass away. And this is just common sense. All empires pass away. All human power structures have failed at one point or another. People said that Alexander the Great's regime was immortal. And Alexander the Great died in his 20s and his generals took over the place. They immediately broke up his empire and everything fell apart really, really quickly. But Pilate knows that the Caesars insist that their line is immortal. And that Rome is immortal. And that the power of Rome is immortal. And to say anything against that is treason. So in this moment, he looks at the secretary's report, he sees what Yeshua was reported to have said, and he knows that if Yeshua just talks himself out of it, he'll be fine. He talked himself out of the rebellion thing, all he said was, they misunderstood me, and I didn't say that thing, and you know the people ran off with it, and no, I never incited any rebellion. Pilate looks at this and he says, all Yeshua needs to do is lie. And everyone wins. Yeshua goes free. Maybe they condemn him as a madman, but in which case he gets to live right next to Pilate. And Pilate gets to go visit him all the time. Pilate gets to hang out with Yeshua and, you know, get his headaches cured. And he gets to build that human connection that he so desperately needs. All Yeshua needs to do is lie. He says, did you say anything about the great Caesar? Yes or no. And notice the Bulgakov emphasizes this. He draws the word no out. Is it yes, or is it no? And he's gesturing, he's signaling, he's like, come on, Yeshua, this is your chance. Get yourself off the hook. Now is your moment. Free yourself. Take your head out from that hair that it's dangling by and set your feet on solid ground. We can get out of this yet. And Yeshua's response is one of the most powerful things I teach in this class. He says, to speak the truth is easy and pleasant. I don't know whether Yeshua is oblivious to what Pilate is trying to say, like he's just completely missing it, or if it's something more profound. Based on the insight that we've seen from Yeshua before, it's probably the latter. He probably knows what's at stake. I mean, he just said a moment ago that his head is hanging by a hair, but it wasn't Pilate who hung it and Pilate sees now. Caesar is the one holding the hair. Pilate, if he lets this guy go after saying treasonous stuff about Caesar, Pilate's head is on the block. Pilate is also guilty of treason. Pilate could also be conceived of as conspiring with Caesar. And notice that in this moment, he looks at the secretary and he's mad because the secretary is the one who's going to report him. The secretary has been writing all this down, and even at one moment, you'll notice Pilate says, stop writing, and the secretary doesn't. He keeps going. He knows his responsibility. In some level, Pilate's head is also hanging by a hair. He is also out of power here. He has to condemn Yeshua if Yeshua uttered treason. If Yeshua said anything against Caesar, Pilate has to take him out, no question, no way out, no way against this. And what's more, he knows that the, the priests are against him. Like, in a moment, he's going to have that conversation with Kaipha, where they're going to release someone just like the Gospels talk about, and he knows they're going to pick Barabbas, because he knows that the priests have a grudge against Hanosri, against Yeshua. So this is it. This is the moment. All Yeshua has to do is lie and everyone wins. Everybody goes home. There's peace, quiet, everyone lives. It's great. And Yeshua says to tell the truth is easy and pleasant. It doesn't matter to him whether or not he dies for this. He is so confident, so truthful, so irrevocably good. That even all the power structures of Caesar and all the mind games of Pilate and all the manipulations and all the complex political situation that he finds himself in, Yeshua doesn't even care. Yeshua is utterly indifferent, utterly untouched by this. To speak the truth is easy and pleasant, he says. As though lies were ultimately more damaging. I have no need to know. Pilate responded in a stifled, angry voice. Whether it is pleasant or unpleasant for you to speak the truth, you will have to speak it anyway. But as you speak, weigh every word, unless you want a not only inevitable, but also painful death. No one knew what had happened with the procurator of Judea, but he allowed himself to raise his hand as if to protect himself from a ray of sunlight, and from behind his hand as from behind a shield to send the prisoner some sort of prompting look. He says, answer then, do you know a certain Judas from Kiriath? And this is the very same Judas we saw being munched on by the devil back in Dante. This is the informant. This is the person who led Jesus into a trap. It's different than it is structured in the Gospels, but the essence is the same. Judas brought Jesus into a room, had him utter this treasonous statement about Caesar, and as Pilate points out, lit the lamps to reveal the identity to the Sanhedrin, as is written in the in the the texts. He's the one who screwed Jesus over, who screwed Yeshua over. And yet, Pilate even gets ironic here. The prisoner starts explaining, this evening before last near the temple I made the acquaintance of a young man who called himself Judas from the town of Kiriath. He invited me to his place in the lower city and treated me to, and Pilate interrupts, a good man? He asks. Judas, the guy who gets munched on primarily, like who is The one face first in the mouth of Satan in Dante's Inferno. Widely considered the worst betrayer who ever lived. Guilty of the worst sin ever committed. And Yeshua doesn't hesitate. Yes! A good man. A very good man. And an inquisitive one, the prisoner confirmed. He showed the greatest interest in my thoughts and received me very cordially. Lit the lamps. Pilate spoke through his teeth. The act of betrayal that Judas commits. Yeshua is again either oblivious or completely in tune with what's going on and not condemning Judas at all. The worst man who ever lived, Yeshua says, a very good man. No condemnation, no judgment, and this is the Yeshua who always speaks the truth. So when Pilate in fact asks him, what did you say? Or are, you go- or are you going to reply that you've forgotten what you said, but there was already hopelessness in Pilate's tone, and Yeshua tells him what he said. The secretary writes it all down. Pilate looks over at the secretary with hatred. And it's over. Game's over. Pilate could have saved him if Yeshua had only lied. But Yeshua's not willing to. Yeshua... Is no coward. Pilate is. Because all this plays out afterwards. Pilate knows he's innocent. Again he's either you know completely oblivious to the consequences of his actions or he's nuts and in either case the Roman government has no fight with him. He should absolutely just be removed from the city so it doesn't cause a problem and then conveniently enough he can be located near Pilate everything works out great. But Pilate has no choice. In order to save his own life, to keep him alive, to keep his position of power, he has to condemn Yeshua. There's no choice in the matter. Pilate did not hang the hair that Yeshua's head hangs by. Caesar did. Pilate is terrified of the repercussions that will ensue if he rejects Caesar's law, if he does not condemn this man for treason. Pilate is bound, tied. He is powerless. In this This is the key to the entire story here. What Bulgakov is talking about here in Israel is the same exact power structure, the same exact temptation, the same exact fear that he sees in Soviet Russia. At the same time as Pilate is saying, you know, I would save this good man, this man who has done nothing wrong and yet can't, Because he's terrified that he's going to lose his own life, that the powers above him, Caesar and the secretary who's reporting his actions and the centurion rat slayer and everyone who is watching him make these calls will ultimately come down on him like a ton of bricks and he will lose his life and everything will be ruined. He is terrified. And so he lies. He does an injustice. He condemns Jesus to death. It's a reasonable lie. It's a reasonable injustice. It's what anyone would do in this situation except Yeshua, who knows that he could save himself and yet doesn't, because the truth is easy and pleasant. No, it's not. Pilate knows this. Berlioz knows this. Homeless knows this. Every Soviet Russian, including Bulgakov himself, knows this. You talk against Stalin and you end up in a black bag. That's how it works. When you write a story about Jesus, you run the risk of disappearing in the night. And there are more than enough people out there who are willing to report you. People like Berlioz, who is scared for his own skin so he takes off when the devil starts talking about Jesus so he doesn't get wrapped up in whatever nonsense is going to transpire. And Pilate, who will ultimately let Yeshua die rather than die himself even though he was just thinking of suicide even though he doesn't want any part of this even though it's entirely likely that the reason he had his headache in the first place is because nobody's been telling him the truth for years at this point because they're all living in this nest this web of lies and deceptions and politicking and trying to suck up to the caesar pilot still out of pure ugly faint-hearted fear chooses to let Yeshua die instead. The first good man, the first truth-telling man he knows. And Bulgakov is mad about it. Unfortunately, we did not get to a lot of this, and as it is, this lecture went way too long, and I'm going to probably have to cut quite a bit of it out. But what I want to emphasize is this. As we go along, look for the justice Look for all of these men who are hiding the truth, hiding behind their responsibilities to the state, refusing to speak the truth, which is easy and pleasant, for fear that they will die or that there will be repercussions from above. Look for those moments when the secret police are hanging in the wings. People like Berlioz making a phone call to get themselves out of hot water, because Bulgakov is looking at them. And this is the only way he can talk about it without getting put in a black bag himself. In order to talk about the way that Soviet people are afraid of the power structures that govern them, the closest thing he could come up with was Pilate and Caesar, the Roman Empire and its tyranny. This is the key to unlocking all the central themes of this book. It's the key to unlocking why the devil is running loose in Russia in the first place, why there's a certain joy that Bulgakov takes in seeing middle-managing pencil-pushers like Berlioz, too cowardly to actually stand up for the truth, get decapitated by the tram. Bulgakov is letting the devil run wild, because it's high time somebody showed everybody the truth.